Now, for the kids who have been here the last couple of weeks, you know that there's an extra word that we've kind of thrown in on top of all that because it's a word that's been coming up every week over and over and over again. And that key word is actually a name, and it's the name David. So again, as we've been doing the last couple of weeks, once again today, in addition to the, to the other keywords, which got mixed in with next week's keywords, which might be part of January's keywords, we aren't quite sure yet. But anyway, all those words that you've been hearing, add David to it, and, and uh, that'll be a good thing. Some of you are not old enough to remember the Carol Burnett show. But for those of you who are, you know that half the time, the funniest thing about the show was watching them trying not to laugh at each other. Um, there are so many funny skits, Carol Burnett playing Scarlett O'Hara in a knockoff of Gone with the Wind where she's wearing the drapes as a dress and the curtain rod's still in it and all that kind of stuff. Uh, one of my favorite skits on the Carol Burnett show is uh, Carol is sitting at a table with three friends in a restaurant. And the waiter comes up and gives the other three menus and doesn't give her a menu. And he brings glasses of water for the other three and doesn't bring her a glass of water. And then a few minutes later, the waiter comes back and he takes the orders of the other three people and he doesn't take her order. And then somebody from another table comes over, puts his hands on the chair she's sitting in and says, if nobody's using this chair, do you mind if we take it? Apparently, she was invisible. Or at least she certainly felt that way. There are a lot of times in life where we feel invisible. There are a lot of times in life we feel that people just look right past us, that people look beyond us, they look right through us, they don't ever even see us. And what's so interesting is this is true of one of the characters in the Christmas story. In the Christmas story, there is a character who is virtually invisible. Not only is he invisible, in the pages of Scripture where Joseph appears, not one time do we have him speaking. Joseph never speaks. No words are attributed to him. Now we know that probably in life he actually talked a lot like anybody, but the Scriptures don't capture any of his words. So not only is he invisible, he's silent. He almost seems surplus to requirements for the story. He almost seems unnecessary. I heard a few years ago of a church Christmas pageant uh, where the Sunday school kids were going to put on the Christmas story for the Sunday morning service before Christmas. And all of the parts were learned, all the lines were memorized, all the costumes were made. And Sunday morning came and it was just minutes before the service and the directors of the program got a call from the mother of the kid who was supposed to be Joseph and said, he's sick, he can't come. And the response was, well, that's okay. Nobody notices him anyway. Joseph is the invisible character in the Christmas story. But the reality is, on a human level, and we understand we don't deal with things like this purely on a human level, because when God is engaged, it's never purely human. But the reality is, on a human level, if Joseph does not embrace Christmas, nobody does. The story could have ended before it ever began, depending on choices that he makes. And that's why, even though he's invisible, 
And even though he's silent, he is very, very important to the telling of the story that we celebrate this Christmas tomorrow morning. So turn to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1. This is one of three places where Joseph actually appears. He appears in Matthew 1. He appears in Matthew 2. And he appears in Luke chapter 2. He's named several other places in the Gospels. But these are the only times we really see him on the stage. And Matthew 1 and 2 are the ones where he's really active as a player in this drama. Now, we're going to start in verse 18. But before we look at verse 18, we need to back up and see what precedes it. What precedes it is the genealogy of Jesus. Now, we don't do genealogy. I mean, some people are doing Ancestry.com and stuff like that, and they're trying to figure out their family trees. But for the most of us, we tend to live more in the present tense, and we remember our parents and our grandparents. We don't go back much further than that. In Israel, everything rested on genealogy. You had to be able to trace your heritage all the way back through the line of Israel. And so Matthew, who's writing his gospel account to a Jewish audience, begins by validating the identity of Jesus, and he does it by giving the genealogy. He does that including, notice verse 6, and to Jesse was born David, the king. David pops up again, and we see him again in verse 17. Therefore, all the generations from Abraham to David are 14, and from David to the deportation of Babylon, 14, and from Babylon to the time of Christ, 14. And then we see David pop up again in verse 20. Joseph, son of David. Why is all this here? All of this is here is so that the Jewish audience who's going to be reading this story or hearing it read knows from the very beginning that before anything else happens in this book, we need to understand who Jesus is. And from a Jewish perspective, there could be nothing more important to know about Him than that He is the Son of David. He is of the tribe of Judah and of the royal line of David the king. All of that background is critical when Joseph steps into the story and it says in verse 16, to Jacob was born Joseph. And notice how carefully Matthew states this. The husband of Mary, by whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. Christ, by the way, is just the Greek equivalent of Messiah. He's the Messiah. He's the sent one. He's the rescuer. He's the deliverer. But notice it doesn't say of Joseph was born. No, Joseph was the husband of Mary by whom Jesus was born. And now to unpack all of that, he gives us verse 18. And when verse 18 opens, what we've got is a man with a problem. It's a big problem. It's a big problem in that culture. Notice verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. Now, verse 18 sounds fairly straightforward to us, but remember, Matthew's writing to a Jewish audience. And to Matthew's Jewish audience, this verse is just packed full of important details for them so they understand the chronology of the events of what's happening. And what's happening is found in the words betrothed, and the words came together. 
Those are all critical in mapping out the process of really Jewish marriage customs. In Jewish marriage customs, marriage had three steps, three phases to it. The first phase was the engagement. It didn't always take place this way, but much of the time, in fact, some would say even most of the time, the way engagement would take place is this. When a family had a baby girl, okay, newborn baby girl, another family in town who already had a boy who might be five, six, eight, ten years older, that family would come to the family that just had the baby girl and they would negotiate an engagement between the couple. So, kids, be nice to your parents. They might pick your life partner one day. Um, you didn't meet someone at school and start dating and then go to college and then come back and decide you want to get married and you set a date. And you, no, that wasn't the way it was done. Mom and dad decided who you were going to marry. Now, that may terrify you. Or it may comfort you. I don't know. But it depends on what you end up with, I suppose. Engagement was done by the parents, and it was basically a contract between these two families, and a contract between the two families that was recognized by the community. In Israel, as in most of the Eastern world, everything was done in community. The reason why community groups are necessary here in the West is because we don't do stuff in community. We tend to do stuff in isolation. We tend to be independent. In Eastern cultures, people are very dependent upon one another. Everything is done as a community. So the community would watch over and vouchsafe this covenant of marriage between this baby girl and this boy, however old he is. The second phase in Jewish marriage customs comes in the word betrothed. Betrothed would be the formal announcement that in one year's time, the marriage is going to be finalized. The term in Hebrew is Kedushin, and it was the betrothal period. And what made it so interesting and very, very different from ours is that in Kedushin, what would happen is the betrothal would be declared, and then one year would transpire before the marriage took place. But during that one year, Everything was the same as being married, except you didn't live together and you didn't sleep together. Everything else was just as if you were married. And that's why anyone who was sexually unfaithful during that one-year Kedushan period would be charged with adultery, not promiscuity. Because they were violating their wedding vows, even though the marriage itself has not yet been consummated. Then after a year's time, what would happen is the, the wedding would take place, the marriage would be consummated, they'd have a wedding feast, they'd have all this kind of stuff, and, and then the couple would go, they would consummate the marriage physically, and then they would live together from that time on. That's how weddings took place in ancient Israel. And what's interesting is when you, when you factor a couple of other things into this, and this is just kind of a sidelight. Uh, it's not really a Christmas story, but it's just kind of fun to think about. Um, think about John 14. Jesus is in the upper room with his disciples the night before the cross. And he says, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. 
In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, Behold, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, you shall be also. Now, when Jesus said that to his disciples in the upper room, you know what they would have done? They would have given him a blank stare and scratched their heads. You know why? Because that's all wedding talk. He's talking to his disciples like a groom talking to a bride. See, they don't have the rest of the New Testament. They don't know that the body of Christ that they will help start is going to be called the bride of Christ. They don't know all of that. We do. But what we know about wedding customs is this. During the year of Kedushan, once betrothal is stated and before the wedding takes place, during the year of Kedushan, what would happen is two things would be accomplished. One, the bride would be proven to be pure and therefore able to marry. And the groom would be preparing a home for his bride. And what would happen is because trades were passed down from father to son, and generally whatever your dad did for a living, whether a shepherd or a baker or, or, or a carpenter, that's the trade you would grow up in. And so not only did you work together, but you would stay in the same home. When you got ready to get married, you would add an addition onto that home. And then when it was time for the wedding, you would go to the bride's home, you would collect the bride, you would take her home to your father's house, to the place you had prepared for her, and there you would be together as husband and wife. The imagery of Jewish wedding customs is shot through Jesus' words of John 14. And so if the disciples seem a little bit confused in the things they say after that, there's a reason for that. Because they don't understand that the bride of Christ is what they're representing in that moment. It is in that condition period where Joseph is learning a trade and Joseph is preparing a home for her and Joseph is getting ready to go to her home and fetch her and take her to his father's house to be his bride. It's during that period of time, that critical period of time, that it says, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. Before they came together, that's the consummation of the marriage. Betrothed, that's Kedushin. It's in that one year season of time. And Joseph only knows this. Joseph only knows that his betrothed went away to visit her relative Elizabeth and when she came back, she was pregnant. That's all we know. And verse 19 allows us a window into the turmoil of his heart and the turmoil of his soul as he deals with this. Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man, being a man of the law, not wanting to disgrace her, desired to put her away secretly. Now here's what would happen. If a bride was found to be pregnant during the Kedushan period, here's what would happen. Here's what rabbinical teaching expected and required of the groom. You would bring your pregnant bride into the synagogue on the Sabbath before the community. Again, remember, community is huge. Before the entire community, he would declare that she is pregnant 
He would declare that he is not the father. He would declare that he is divorcing her. And he is demanding that the community execute punishment. The punishment was severe. In ancient Egypt, if you were guilty of adultery, they would cut off your nose. And not to spite your face. I mean, they would just cut it off. They would cut off your nose so that everywhere you went for the rest of your life, you would be branded as an adulterer. In Persia, they would cut off the nose of one ear. In Israel, they would stone you to death. So the responsibility of a righteous man who lives under the law, the responsibility of a righteous man would be to take his pregnant bride, declare her to be pregnant, declare her to be unfaithful, declare that she is now divorced from him, and demand that the community act to defend his rights. That's what we have. But not wanting to disgrace her, he desired to put her away secretly. Isn't it interesting? That even though he is a man of the law, he has a heart full of mercy. You know what mercy is? What mercy is is seeking the betterment of another instead of demanding your own rights. That's what mercy is. At the forfeit of his own rights. And oh, by the way, in the community, in the community, if he does not divorce her, if he does not declare her to be an adulteress, if he does not do those things to expose her, he will be seen as partner in her sin. It will be assumed by the community that he's the father of the child and that they both violated their marriage contract. This is a huge deal, folks. Joseph is faced with this massive problem because he understands the law, but he has a heart filled with mercy. So what's he going to do? If he protects her reputation, he ruins his own. But mercy is seeking the betterment of another rather than exercising your own rights. And so it says, he desired to put her away secretly. Now there was a provision in some rabbinical teaching that allowed for this. It was, it was not common because the price tag for the groom was so huge. But it was occasionally allowed that instead of bringing the guilty person before the synagogue, before the community, demanding their death, all those things, that what you could do is have a private ceremony in front of two witnesses and lay the story out to them and have her put away secretly put away secretly. Why? To protect her from disgrace. To protect her from shame. To protect her from stoning. In this moment, can you even begin to imagine the heartache Joseph must be? 
based on the information he has, she has been unfaithful. Here he is waiting patiently for their wedding night. To, to the information he has, she has been unfaithful. She has failed him. She has betrayed him. She has ruined his entire future. And he still seeks mercy. And he still seeks to put her away secretly. Not publicly. And what's so interesting about this is in this little vignette, I think we see evidence of why Joseph was chosen to be the stepfather of God's son. Because here, the heart of Joseph is reflecting the heart of God. Because when he could have condemned Mary, he showed mercy instead. Just like our God, when he could have condemned us, showed us mercy instead. For while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And what's so interesting is the heart of the Father reflected in the heart of a stepfather reveal themselves afresh in the heart of Jesus in John chapter 8 when he is confronted with an adulterous woman. And rather than giving her condemnation, he shows her mercy. Joseph, what a marvelous human conduit for the Father's heart to pass from God to His Son in fleshly example in Joseph. But this doesn't solve Joseph's problem. This doesn't solve Joseph's problem. Notice, however, the man with the problem was given a solution. But when he had considered this, considered this, pondered, when he had pondered this, and it's even deeper than pondered, even though pondered is one of our best words for it, um, there's a sense in which the Greek word enthumethentos is a very rich word, but it means to think about something so deeply, to ponder something so deeply, to, to go so deeply into a situation mentally and emotionally and intellectually to try to unravel it that you enter into an almost trance-like state. If you watch Sherlock, it'd be Sherlock and his mind palace. That's what enthumethentos is where you're so completely locked into this problem you're trying to solve that it's like the whole world goes away and you're just isolated with the problem and you alone. And that's what this word enthumethentos describes. That's what pondering is in its fullest sense. And while he was pondering these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for that which has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. Don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife. These are the words he needed to hear. He needed to have some kind of validation that she had not betrayed him, that she had not broken her wedding vows, that she had not violated Kedushin. She hadn't done any of those things. And so what happens is the angel comes and says, it's okay. Take as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. Now, 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 in first century Israel, they did not have 
complete or thorough understanding of the person of the Holy Spirit. There's very limited information actually in the Old Testament on the Holy Spirit, so they would have had very little information. But here's what they did have. Genesis 1. Genesis 1. And the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the deep. The biggest idea that the Jews had about the Holy Spirit was that the Holy Spirit was somehow involved in the creation of the universe. And now, transferring that to this, the message of the angel is the same Holy Spirit who was engaged in the creation of the universe has been engaged in the creation of a physical body for God's Son to live in on this earth. Don't be afraid to take her to Shabbat. And in this moment, what happens? If Joseph accepts this, you've got to get this. If Joseph accepts it, there's a price tag attached. If Joseph accepts it, the cloud over Mary's head in the eyes of the community now comes over Joseph's head. And he will live the rest of his life under a cloud of speculation. He will live the rest of his life under a cloud of destroyed and ruined reputation. The angel continues. She will bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus, for it is he who will save his people from their sins. You shall call his name is critical because that was the father's responsibility. The father was the one who named the child. That's why in Luke chapter 1, when Zacharias can't speak and Elizabeth says, call him John, they go to the father and say, wait a minute, there's nobody in your family named John. And, and Zacharias says, no, 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 name him John. That was the father's responsibility. And even though Joseph is not the father, he is going to have all the responsibilities of the father. He's going to have all the burden of a father. All the challenges of a father. All the fears of a father. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And now Joseph has to sort this out. On a human level, Joseph has a choice to make. Does he put her away privately, knowing that he'll never see her again? And all of his plans for his future life are gone. Does he take her as his wife, like this angelic messenger has said, knowing that the rest of his life he will be looked at with judgmental and condemning eyes by the people around him? What's he going to do? Now, Matthew's a pretty good storyteller, so what he does at this point is he interrupts the story to let the tension build, to let the drama build. And he interrupts the story to whisper to us some important information. Now, I never heard put in those kind of terms until a few years ago, Michael Carr and I were sharing a week of teaching uh, at Maranatha, and he said, John is the gospel writer who whispers. And what that means is from time to time, in the middle of the narrative, he'll stop the narrative and say, no, this is happening for this reason, blah, 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 blah. And then we'll go back to telling the story. Well, what I found is that not only does John do that, all the gospel writers do that. All the gospel writers and most often for Matthew, because his thing is all about prophecy, and because his thing is all about Jesus fulfilling prophecy, and Jesus being the answer to prophecy, and Jesus being the end of prophecy, every time he does this kind of whispering thing, it's usually one of these, now this happened in order to fulfill what had been written by blah, blah, blah. 
Okay? So Matthew whispers. Just to give context to the Jewish audience, in case they weren't paying attention, in case you aren't getting it, in case you can't connect the dots, let me connect them for you. Verse 22, now all this took place to what was spoken by the Lord to the prophet might be fulfilled, saying, Behold the virgin, Mary, before they came together, shall be with child, and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. And this perfectly captures for us the child that will be born. The child whose birth we celebrate tomorrow. The child whose coming would change the world. Because in the two names, Jesus and Emmanuel, we get his identity and we get his mission. His identity is he is Emmanuel, God with us. His mission is he's come to save his people from their sins. That's who he is. That's why he came. Matthew wants to make sure nobody misses that. This is who he is. He's God with us. And oh, by the way, the next 27 chapters are going to prove it. Everything he writes after this verse are to validate that prophetic claim. To make that prophecy sing in the ears of his listeners. He is God with us. And so we see him heal a leper, and we see him heal a blind man, and we see him raise the dead, and we see him, and we see him. Why? Because Matthew is proving the claim that he's got with us. And then the story culminates on a cross where Jesus dies for the sins of the world because he came to save his people from their sins. Who he is. And why He came is the whole purpose for everything that follows. And Matthew wants to map it out for us right away. Back to the story. Joseph arose from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took her as his wife and kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son and he called his name Jesus. Here we see Joseph embracing Christmas. Here we see Joseph giving acceptance to what is being required of him. And we see his acceptance of all this by doing the opposite of what his heart maybe would have wanted to do. To put her away privately, to start over, to maybe try to find a beginning with someone. No, no, no. He puts all that away and he accepts this situation with all of the challenges and danger and mockery and ridicule that it would bring to him and Mary. To Mary and him. His acceptance is seen in his obedience. The angel said, take her as your wife. So he took her as his wife. The angel said, call his name Jesus. And he called his name Jesus. This is Joseph's acceptance of a situation he didn't ask for. Of a situation that would turn his life upside down on the way to turning the world upside down. But it's a situation that he accepts out of trust in the love and grace of God. I don't know about you, but uh, 
I think Joseph's a pretty cool guy. I think the carpenter shop in Nazareth must have been a pretty fabulous place, not in the least because of Joseph and who he was. With everything culturally around him screaming at him to cut his losses and move on, he digs in and obeys. And he trains a son with the heart of the Father in ways that we can only begin to imagine. And he validates the word of the angel that this child is worth the risk. This child is worth all of the cultural blowback. spent a lot of years studying the Gospels and I've spent a lot of years trying to get inside Joseph's head and trying to get inside Joseph's heart. And there's not much of him in the Scriptures, so it's kind of hard to do. But a few years ago, the group for him did a song telling the Christmas story from Joseph's perspective and trying to capture the confusion the wonder, the amazement, the miracle, the obedience of this carpenter in Nazareth. The chorus of the song said, Why me? I'm just a simple man of trade. Why him? With all the rulers in the world, why here? Inside a stable filled with hay. Why her? She's just an ordinary girl. Now I'm not one to second guess what angels have to say. But this is such a strange way to say it. That's Joseph's Christmas story. And because he embraced Christmas, we do too. And we celebrate that God is with us and that He came to save us from our sins. Merry Christmas. Father, we pray that the wonder and the message and the glory of the Christ would reign in our hearts. Father, this seems so strange sometimes. Sometimes it's beyond our imagination how it works, how it makes sense, how it all comes together. But we know and we trust and we accept that in your wisdom, a baby had to come. And that baby would be God with us. And that baby would go to a cross. And that baby would rise from the grave. Such a strange way to save the world. And we're so eternally grateful that you did. In Jesus' name we pray.